Good morning. Since the uh, Garden of Eden, man has struggled with the temptation not to tell the truth, to run from responsibility for our actions and to uh, hide our faults. Um, Jesus reminded us that Satan, from the beginning, he was a liar and he was a murderer. And uh, if you'll recall, it was Satan who had told Eve that she surely would not die. And not only would she not die if she ate of the forbidden fruit, but she would become like God. And that was the lie from the very beginning. That somehow or another what God says isn't really true and what Satan has us to believe is really the truth. And uh, that's our struggle. You know, lying to conceal our wrong behavior has long been man's favorite uh, escape route. And it's a rare individual who stands for honesty and truth and integrity. And that's why it's recognized as such a rare quality and a rare trait. And it's something that we need to really encourage not only in our own lives, but in those of the lives of the folks that are around us. We need to be people of honesty, people of truthfulness and integrity. And I like the story that I heard not too long ago about a father who was trying to instill this quality or this virtue in the lives of his young children. Specifically, he had several young boys who were, well, let's just call them a little bit mischievous. They like to get into things. They like, like to get into trouble. And apparently uh, what happened was one of these young boys had pushed a porta potty that they had on their property for a construction project, had pushed it over the side of a bank down into the stream that was on their property. And the father wanted to get to the root of this and wanted to find out who did it. So he called all his young sons together and he told them, he said, hey, listen, boys, um, I want to ask you a question. Which one of you pushed the porta potty down the slope into the stream? They all looked around and they all shrugged their shoulders. No, not us. We didn't do it. Now, his dad knew it was one of them. He was trying to figure out how he could somehow get one of them to divulge the truth. So he began to tell them the story of George Washington, the founding father of our country. You know, George Washington, when he was a young boy, if you know the story, apparently at one point in time he had chopped down a cherry tree. And his father had asked who did it, and George stood up, little George, and said, Father, I cannot tell a lie. It was me. I chopped down the cherry tree. And he told this story to him and said, you know, and George Washington was known as a man of honesty and integrity and truthfulness, and he became president of the United States. He went on to be one of the greatest leaders of our country. And his father was very proud of George, little George, for telling the truth. And at that moment, right at the story's conclusion, his youngest son stepped forward and said, Father, it was I. I pushed the porta potty down the slope. And his father looked at him and said, well, thank you. I appreciate you being honest. And his dad walked over a nearby tree and pulled off a little uh, a branch and took it over and then just swatted that kid's backside and just spanked him. The little boy's crying. He can't figure out what's going on. He goes, but, 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 Dad, you told me that George's dad was proud of him for telling the truth about chopping down the cherry tree. And his dad looked at him and said, he was, son, but George's dad wasn't in the cherry tree when he chopped it down. So we got to be careful, you know, we want to instill that quality, that virtue of honesty in the lives of our children, but you know, there are some times when we got to be careful about how we want to present that message. Anyway, seriously, it doesn't take a keen observer today to note that truthfulness is an elusive virtue, as the recent events in Washington would indicate, and regardless of one's position on what's going on, I'll guarantee you this, someone is lying. And I'm not saying who, because I don't know, but I, I'll guarantee you somebody's lying. And that's the only way that it's all going to fall into place. There's no way that every person that's opening their mouth is telling the truth. And eventually, hopefully, the truth will come out. But you know what? Sometimes this side of heaven, the truth that doesn't always come out. 
And so what we need to recognize and understand is that, you know, truth seems to be an elusive virtue today. And uh, it's interesting because even in our courts of law, when you go in, if you testify, they'll ask you as you testify, do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Isn't that interesting? And nothing but the truth. Well, that's an interesting thought. And nothing but the truth. You know what? It's, it, it's fascinating, this whole question of truth, because it's been debated by philosophers since the dawn of man. If you recall Pilate at the trial of Jesus Christ, at one point in his frustration asked Jesus, what is truth? Can you tell me, what, what's the truth? There were accusations, allegations, there were charges that were being uh, raised uh, toward Jesus Christ and some of the things that they claimed that he did or said or whatever. And in frustration, he said, what's the truth? What is truth? Now, if you recall, Jesus had already answered that question very eloquently and very concisely when he told his disciples not many days before that. He said, well, you know what? This is truth. This is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that no man can come unto the Father but through me. That's the truth. I am the truth. He said, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He also said, when he was talking about leaving and preparing his followers, he said, you know, it's good that I go away, because when I go away, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God will come. And he will, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He goes on to pray later in John 17 for his followers, which includes us. He says, Father, sanctify them or set them apart in truth because, Father, your word is truth. The essence of truth and everything that is truthful was embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh. The word of God, the truth of God, the revelation of God as to the ultimate truth became flesh and dwelt among us that Jesus Christ, when we see him in his life, he reflects the ultimate truth of everything that God wants us to know. Jesus is the truth, the truth, specific truth. He is the life, the only life. He is the way, the only way. And he was very clear when he said that. Now, I want to share that with you because it gives us some insight as we continue in our study of Paul's second letter to the believers in Thessalonica. Because Paul was a balanced Christian and he had a balanced ministry and we see this in evidence as we come to the conclusion this week and next week of this particular letter that he wrote. See, he's moving from prophecy, which we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, or that which had to do with future events, and he's going to move us now to practical living. What's really interesting to me as you read through the Bible and you'll find this to be true specifically of all the, the, the epistles or the letters that are written in the New Testament Every letter that's written starts off with solid truth or doctrinal truth and then moves into how we are to apply it in our daily lives. So Paul was saying, look, you know what, I've already laid the foundation of what truth is and now I want you, now that you've got this foundation, now you can go out and live it. And he was very balanced about that. And he's moving from that which he's, we saw last time that was negative to that which is positive. He's moving from the, the, the lies of Satan to delude people into believing what is false, to now moving us into believing what God says to be truth. And he's going to remind them of this truth in this particular passage that we're going to take a look at. You know, we need a balanced ministry like this today in our own lives. You know, Paul points out, as we'll see, that there must never, we must never permit uh, the study of future events to somehow or another to be an escape for present-day responsibilities. 
You know, so, so many times we sit around and we discuss and we debate what's going to take place in the future, and while we're doing all of that, we're not doing any good in the present. And it's important that we realize that what we learn about the future should, should cause us to respond in the present. Because this is all that God gives us. If we don't have another minute here on earth, we will have lost what we need as far as the present and being active to do what God's called us to do. We will have lost that time while we debate theoretical things of the future. And that's a deception and it's a diversion to keep us from being busy doing the things of God today. So Paul's emphasis was on the truth of God's word. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians, starting with verse 13. And what he wants to share with us is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And in 2 Thessalonians uh, 2, 13, we begin there and we'll go through chapter 3, verse 5. And what he's going to share with us basically is we found that we have four responsibilities to God's truth. There are going to be four responsibilities to God's truth that every believer has a responsibility to understand. So let's take a look at it and we'll go through them one at a time. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting with verse 13, we read these words. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. He says, and it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. It says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you and that we may be delivered from perverse and evil men for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. And may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. As we go through this, he's going to share with us these four responsibilities that every one of us who call ourselves Christians or our believers have in our responsibility towards God's truth. The first thing he says is this, that we are to believe... We're to believe the truth. We're to believe the truth. If God says it, we're to believe it. It's as simple as that. And he goes on in verses 13 and 14 and explains it to us. He says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith and truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this particular section, what he wants us to do is understand that we have a responsibility to believe the truth of God. If God says it, we are to believe it. And what he does here is he, he, um, he goes through and re-examines for them and for us what's essential as far as our salvation or our relationship to God. And look at the first thing he says is this. He says, you are beloved by the Lord. That you are beloved by the Lord. He repeats this over and over again, and he's repeating it for the purpose of, hey, I want to lay this foundation again because then it's going to lead to the action that we're going to talk about here shortly. But he's saying, I want you to know and I want you to believe this truth. God loves you. God loves you. You are beloved by the Lord. Do you realize that everything God does in our life, he does because he's motivated by love? 
Sometimes it's a very difficult thing for us to understand, but we cannot get away from what the truth of the Bible has to say. And that is that God so loved this world, what? That he was motivated by his love to give us his only begotten son. Whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That God was so motivated by love that he gave us his son on our behalf that he would die for us. God was motivated by love to do that. God loves people. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, for God demonstrated his love to us, and yet while we were still sinners, God sent his son to die for us. Could you imagine for a moment that God was so motivated by love that even when you and I could care less about God, when rebellion against God, didn't have any interest in God, we're going our own way, doing our own thing, that God still loved you and your rebellion, that he sent Jesus Christ to die for you and me and my rebellion so that we could have a relationship with God if we believed in Jesus Christ. Talk about great love. No greater love than man has this, that a man would lay down his life for his friend. God says there's no greater love than that. God was so motivated by love to give us Christ as a, as a, as a substitution for what we deserve. God is motivated by love. And you know what's interesting to me is that I meet a lot of people, and you probably have been guilty as I have in the past, of saying, you know what? Well, if God really loved me, he wouldn't have let this happen in my life. How many of you have ever said that? I've said it. I've struggled with it. God, if you really love me, then why isn't everything going the way I want it to go in life? And I was reminded of that not too long ago with one of our children, and uh, she wanted to do something. And we didn't think it was a good idea. And uh, we didn't think it was the right thing to do. We didn't think it was a good idea. We didn't think the thing that she wanted to do uh, was a wise thing to do. And so I just said, no. <laughs> uh, and I explained why. But I said, no, you're not going to do that. And her answer to me was, and you probably have never heard this because our children are so unique. Hers was, well, so-and-so can do it. They trust their daughter. Okay. So, and the point being? <laughs> well, then you don't trust me. You know, like that was a trick question. I say, no, well, let me throw this back to you. Here's the way I see it. You don't trust me. See, you don't trust me. You don't trust me. You don't trust your mom. You don't trust us. And she had that look in her face like, how'd this happen? How'd this get spun so quickly? And she looked at me like, and I said, well, let me explain what I mean by that. Because let me ask you a question. Do you believe that we love you? Do you believe that we have your best interest in mind? Do you believe that we want what's best for you in your life? Well, yeah. I said, well, then let me ask you. If we don't think this is best for you, and this isn't in your best interest, and you already know that we love you, then why can't you accept and believe what we have to say? See, it really became, you don't trust us. So there's a question of whether you really believe that we love you or not. And see, what's fascinating about that little encounter is that I walk away and God says, hey, now that you got, th now that you got through to her on that, do you mind if I get through to you on the same subject? <laughs> said, and, and the point. <laughs> and the point is simple. God loves me. God loves you. God loves 
these folks at Thessalonica. He said, you are beloved by God. God loves you. And as they struggled with what they were going through in their life, they needed a good, healthy dose of reality that, you know what? God loves us. And despite our interpretation of the events that go on in our lives, the bottom line is this, that God is motivated by His love for us, that He will allow whatever He allows to happen in our life for His purposes and for His glory and for our betterment as far as our relationship to Him. Do we trust God or do we not? See, that's what it really boils down to, and that's what he was trying to get across to them. Don't ever forget, folks, that first and foremost, God loves you. And he was motivated by great love for you when he sent Jesus Christ to die for your sins. Everything that God does is motivated by love. And the problem that we have is we need to believe that truth. That sometimes, somehow, we believe like our children do at times, that, you know what, well, God, you must not trust me or you must not really love me if you don't give me what I want when I want it. Excuse me, but you know what? I guess there's a lot of perspectives on what it means to love one another. And God's got a real healthy dose of it because you realize the Bible says that God is love. Not he does love, which he does, but he is love. Just as Jesus Christ is truth, God is love. And everything that comes from God is motivated by love. He is love. And we need to become people who begin to believe the fact that, you know what? God loves us. And you know what's a fascinating thing that I found in my life is this. When I finally put that to rest, that God loves me, it doesn't matter what happens in my life because I know that He's there, I know that He cares, and I know that somehow He's going to make what's going on to draw me closer to Him and and improve my walk with the Lord. I just have to believe that. I have to trust Him. And that's really what it comes down to. So it's pretty fascinating when you look at this because what he's trying to get across to them is, hey, number one, believe this truth, God loves you. Now, how do we know that God loves us? Well, he goes on and explains it. He says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by God. God loves you because, and here's how we know, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Isn't that interesting? God not only loves me, make it personal, but God chose me. God not only loves you, but God chose you. And He did it from the very beginning for salvation. Love alone cannot save us. Think about it for a second. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It's a free invitation to anyone who would believe in Him to be saved from sin, judgment, hell, and all that goes with it. The whole package. God so loved the world that He offered an open invitation to anyone. Come whoever would come and believe if you'd believe. But the Bible says this, but God's love alone isn't enough to save this world. Why? Because there are going to be those in this world who say, I don't want your love. I don't want your gift. What we learned last time was, how many times can you offer somebody a gift? I'm going to offer you a gift, I'm going to offer you a gift, I'm going to offer you a gift, and you keep rejecting it, rejecting it, rejecting it, refusing it, refusing it, refusing it. There's a point in time where God says, I'm not offering you the gift anymore. I'm not offering the gift anymore and I'm going to allow you to be turned over to the delusions and the lies of the world in which you live. There's a point of no return in every person's life who has continued to be offered the truth and the grace of God and the forgiveness of God in Christ. There's a point where God just says, okay, that's it. You've rejected me enough and now you're on your own. And on our own, there's no way that we'll ever be saved. And so what he says is, hey, God, God also chose us. Love alone doesn't save us, but God chooses us. Now, what's fascinating about that is that love reveals itself in grace and in mercy. 
If you remember, grace is God giving us that which we don't deserve, and mercy is giving Jesus Christ that which we deserve, God gave to him on the cross in our place. Grace and mercy. So as you look at this, you go, hey, what are we supposed to believe? Well, we're supposed to believe this. This is God's truth. God loves you, and God chose you. The third thing he says is this. He says not only did he choose us from the very beginning, which is fascinating, he says he chose us through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Sanctification by the Spirit. What's he talking about? He's saying that, you know what, not only did God choose you before the foundations of the world, and he knew that you would respond to his choice, but he also sanctify you or set you apart. And all of sanctification just means basically is this, that God sets you apart. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God then sets you apart from the rest of the world who has rejected God's offer of forgiveness. He's saying, okay, God, is, God has openly extended this invitation to every person that's in this building. Now, not every person will say thank you and accept the, the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ. Not every person will believe in Jesus Christ. Some will sit here and go, hey, I'm here for other reasons. I'm here to please my wife or my husband. I'm here just to check it out. I'm not really sure I'm interested in that. You know? And so what God does is he says, that's fine. You know, I open that invitation to you. It's up to you. You, you choose or not. You, you accept it or not. But then once you accept it, then God says, now I set you apart from everybody else that's out in the world, and now you are in a special category, and you're sanctified or set apart by the Spirit of God. And that's what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God convicts us. Think about this. Without God's Spirit in the world, we have a difficult time, if not an impossible time, of understanding that we're guilty before God. Let me give you one of the best examples of that. Go back in the Old Testament to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, and let me show you how the Word of God, as it goes forth, the truth of God, as it goes forth, convicts the hearts of those who are guilty before God. Remember what he said. Jesus said that when the Spirit of God or the Spirit of truth goes forth into the world, He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So as God's word, go, word goes out and His truth goes out, it's the Spirit of God who penetrates our hearts and our minds to make us understand that, you know what? You and I are guilty as charged before God. God charges you and I with this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You are guilty before God. Through one man's sin, sin entered the world, speaking of Adam, and through sin came death. Every human being from that point on is guilty of sin before God. Now the problem that you and I have is, how do you convince other people that their guilty is charged? Because it's easy, as we're seeing, and as you've probably had the occasion, as I have in the past, it's easy to rationalize our behavior and somehow spin it that we're not guilty after all. We redefine the terms. We come up with whole new meanings. There's whole new definitions of what things mean. I'm amazed at some of the definitions of what sexual immorality is today. I, I didn't realize that it only meant that. You know? Uh, you know, And it's easy to spin things to mean something different. In our own minds, we can rationalize and believe anything. And so we're no longer guilty. Well, how do we convince those around us that they are truly guilty before God? Well, the only way we can do it is with the Word of God because it's the Word of God that's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, able to separate bone from marrow. It's the Word of God that goes through and penetrates the heart of man to where man says, hey, I got a problem. Exactly. 
I can't convince you you have a problem, but the Word of God can convince you and the Spirit of God can convince you that you have a problem. Let me give you an example of a man who was guilty of sexual sin before God, who did not think he was guilty of anything that he did, and God sent His Word through His spokesman to confront him about the situation. And what's fascinating about it is, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the backdrop is this. King David saw a woman that he thought was pretty sharp. She was attractive. Her name was Bathsheba because she was taking a bath out on the Sheba. And whatever. Got to throw those things out because, you know, you can only handle so much depth at a time. And, uh, but anyway, so he saw this woman. She was beautiful. And to make a long story short, he thought, gee, wouldn't it be nice to jump in the sack with her? And so he sent his servants to bring her up and they had sex and he found out that she was married and then he found out, oops, she's pregnant. And then he found out, well, I've got to take care of this problem. What am I going to do? And so he worked out this scheme to get her husband to go to the front line of the battlefield so that he would be killed or murdered actually in combat. And so this is what's going on. And, and God has a very interesting definition of what he did. In verse 27 of chapter 11, he says this, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, well, then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said, now this is interesting, don't forget, now this is God sending his word through his servant, his messenger, the prophet Nathan. It says that Nathan goes to David and he says to him, hey, um, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except for one little hue lamb which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. Now it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Okay, you follow the story? This is great. And see, and I love it because Jesus used stories like this often to be able to illustrate a spiritual truth. This is a parable. He tells them a story about a guy who had a whole, he had a, a huge flock. He had a huge flock. He could have taken any one of, the, of his many sheep that he had in his flock and prepared it for this guy who was coming by for this feast that he wanted to have. But there was one guy who lived within his kingdom that only had one little lamb. That's all that he had. But the guy who had everything at his disposal and could have any one of them for this feast that he had decided, you know what, I don't, want all, I don't want anything that I can have access to. I want the one that I can't have or I want the only one that this guy has. All right, do you follow the story? And so look at David's reaction. David's anger burned greatly against that man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and he had no compassion. You see what he did? He brought it right, he brought it all the way back, made it personal to where King David, as judge of the land, would have to respond to this case if it was brought before him. And he said, Man, I can't believe a guy would do something like that. That man is guilty. Not only is he guilty, he needs to make restitution. Not only can he make restitution, but that guy deserves to die. Wow. Now, could you imagine for a moment? When Nathan said this, you are that man. You are that man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. 
if it had, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. That wasn't enough for you. I could have given you more. I put you in this position. I exalted you. I elevated you to a position where you would be a man of integrity, a man of truthfulness, a man of honesty, a man who would judge his kingdom accordingly. I put you there. And why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. He's going to flaunt this in your face. Indeed, you did it secretly. What I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And what's fascinating to me about David's response is a contrast to that of Saul's response when he was guilty of, of a similar item before God and that was rebellion against God. Saul rationalized it, justified it, tried to explain it all away. But King David, a man of integrity, a man after God's own heart, when he was confronted with the evil, evil that he did, he said this, I have sinned against the Lord. I'm guilty. I'm wrong. I'm busted. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. There's no, no way to justify this or to rationalize this. I have been convicted by the Word of God that I'm guilty. I have nowhere to hide any longer. But what's fascinating, he says, you know what? I have sinned before God. See, the Word of God gives us two choices. When we are convicted by the truth where God says you're guilty and you're on the road to hell unless you confess your sin and believe in Jesus Christ that there is no longer a sacrifice available for you, you have a choice of saying, I am guilty before God. Believe that. I'm not going to believe that truth. I'm going to believe my own version of my own truth and I'll spin it whatever way I want. See, David said, I'm guilty. And, I, and I'm guilty and I've sinned before God. And look at, God, look at the Nathan says, and the Lord has taken away your sin. Does it get any simpler than that? Does it get any easier than that to understand? I am guilty. I confess or agree with God that I'm guilty. Forgive me, God. And God says, your sins have been forgiven. Wow, that's fascinating when you think about that. See, God loved, going back to the Thessalonians and us, God loved them. God chose them. He set them apart, which is kind of fascinating because you can see the work of, of the, the triune God or, or, or the persons of the Godhead as, as we read in the Bible, but that's this. God has chosen us. The Father has chosen us before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ died on the cross at a point in time for our sins. And then the Spirit of God sanctifies us or sets us apart. And we see the work of God all throughout salvation. God chose us, Christ died for us, and the Spirit sets us apart. And then he goes on and he says this in verse 14, that he also called them. The same God who ordained salvation also ordained the means to the end and, and uh, belief in the truth in order to fulfill God's plan, which is kind of fascinating. Think about this. And here's where we all get headaches trying to you know, figure out what's going on. Well, if God chose us, well, then God chose us. And if he chose us, he knows us. And if he knows us, well, then why do we have to share you know, God's love with anybody or tell them about Jesus Christ? Because if they're going to reject his, his invitation anyway, well, what's the big deal about it? Well, the problem is this. God called them. 
Well, how did God call them? Romans 10 says this, you can't answer the call unless somebody's been sent. And you can't even understand the gospel unless somebody shares it with you. And our responsibility, as far as future things are concerned, is that, you know what, today we've been called by God to go out into the world and to share with people around us that God loves them. That God truly does love them. That God ha- has chosen them. That God has set them apart if they believe in Jesus Christ. That God has called us to share that message with people around us. See, if we believe that truth, then we're busy sharing with people around us every opportunity that we get in every situation that goes on in our life to tell them these truths. And so he also goes on and he says, you know, God uses human beings to do that. How can you believe unless you hear? How can you hear unless somebody's sent? And that's really what it comes down to. And and the, the, the last thing in this section that he talks about is this. God gave them glory. Look at verse 14. It says, it was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is fascinating. Go back to Romans chapter 8 for a second. Acts, Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, look at verses 29 and 30. Kind of ties this whole idea in because he says this, For whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Look, it says, And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also, what? Glorified. He also glorified. When were we glorified? Think about this for a second. We read last time that those who reject the message of God's love will be eternally punished and separated from God forever. The Bible says that there's no hope for them, that they will suffer forever, that you will suffer forever if you reject the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ. If you reject that gift that God offers you, you will suffer forever in a place called hell. That is where you will end up. For those of us who believe in Jesus Christ and accept the gift that God's offering, the Bible says that we have been glorified. We have been glorified. Well, when did that take place? We were glorified in that moment in time when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He endured the pain, despised the shame. What? For the joy that was set before Him. We were glorified that moment in time. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1.4 that there is an inheritance for us that's permanent, that's reserved for you and I in heaven, that we were glorified when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again three days later. It's not something that's going to only happen to us in the future. It already happened to us in the past when we were forgiven for our sins. Do you realize that every sin you commit, past, present, and future, has already been paid for at the cross of Christ? And we were glorified with Him. When He returns, He says the Son of Man will come in His glory, that there's going to be a day coming in the future where He will come, as we've talked about, for every believer. It's called the rapture of the church or the gathering of His people. But there is also a day that will come at the end of the day of the Lord, which we've also studied, and that's this, that when Jesus Christ returns in glory, that we will return with Him and also be glorified in the sense that Jesus Christ is glorified and we are His trophy, so to speak, that will come with Him as a result of His grace and His mercy. 
that we're going to be glorified one day in the future, but it's already happened in the past. I liken it to this. If you've ever called and made reservations for dinner, you've called ahead and you've reserved the place at a restaurant or a hotel or wherever it is that you want to go. Well, that place is already set aside for you the moment that it's reserved, even though you don't realize it until you actually go and sit at the table. So what God is saying is this. He has reserved the place for you in heaven that took place the day that Jesus died on the cross and that you put your faith and trust in Him. Jesus said it Himself, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if it wasn't so, I wouldn't tell you that. So where I go, prepare a place, I'm coming back for you that you'll be with me. God has reserved a place in heaven for you and I who have accepted and believed in Jesus Christ. It's already reserved for us. Now, I don't know about you, but this changes the way I think about everything in life. It's not just some future thing that I'm looking forward to, but it translates over into day-to-day living. And what he's saying is this, we have a responsibility to believe this truth, those things that he just shared. First is this, do you believe that God loves you? If you believe that God loves you, then you will trust Him in every area of your life. Every circumstance, situation, and event takes place in your life, you will trust that God has your best interest in mind. He's motivated by love. You won't fight him, you won't question him, you won't challenge him. We'll be like the patriarch Job when he went through all the tragedies that he went through in life and he said, you know what, naked I came into the world and naked I'm going out, but blessed be, praise be the name of the Lord. Is that your attitude when you go through difficult times? If not, do you really believe the truth that you just learned? Second thing is, do you believe that God chose you? He chose you before the foundation of the world. Now, I don't know about you, but every morning that I get up, it's a good, good time to just start the day saying, you know what, Lord? I just want to thank you that you chose me before the foundation of the world. You chose me. And I just want to say thank you. You offered me a gift. I just want to say thank you. That you set me apart. Do you believe that God has set you apart? If you believe that God has set you apart for His purposes, then why do you live like all the people around you that haven't been set apart? Then why do you do the same thing that they do? Why do you act the same way they do? Why do you talk the same way they do? Why do you tell the same jokes and stories that they do? Why do you do the same activities that they do? I'm not saying that everything they do is wrong, but you know what? There's a point in our lives where we need to recognize that we are to be separated from everything that goes on in the world. And I'm not saying to be recluse to the point where we're weirdos that nobody can identify with us, but we're to be a light and we're to be salt. We're going to reflect the glory of God and we're to make people thirsty for the truth of the Word of God. We're to be living our lives in a way that when people see us and they see how we respond to life and we've got a peace that surpasses all understanding when we're going through difficult times and people are looking at us saying, I need to know why you're so composed. I need to know why your life's not falling apart. And it's a great opportunity to say, you know why? Let me tell you why. Because I know God loves me. And I know He's got it all in control. And I know that He chose me from the beginning, the foundation of the world, to be forgiven in Christ. And I know that He set set me apart for the reason. What reason? The reason that I will make a difference in the environment that He put me in. I like one guy. I was doing a chapel for the Baltimore Orioles this past year. And it was amazing because there was one guy who was a solid Christian. And I've known him before and he happened to get traded or actually was signed as a free agent to Baltimore. And, and he came into chapel and he was running around the locker room trying to get guys coming. And he talked four guys into coming. And he was so excited because it was a new record. They just set a new record. There was four of them. 
Man, he was so pumped up, so excited, and he was, and, you know, and I shared the word with him. And afterwards, he stayed behind and he hugged me. And he said, "Man, I love guys that share the word, man, because that's the only thing that's going to change hearts and lives. That's the only thing that convicts people." And these guys came and they heard the word, and I just been praying that somebody would just share the word with us. And he gave me a big hug, and he and he goes, "You know, I know why I'm on this team." I said, "Why? Why do you think you're here?" He goes, "Because there's no other Christians on this team. This is why I'm here. I'm set apart from everybody." And he had his work cut out for him. But you know what's interesting about him? Contrast him to most of us. I'm the only Christian on my job. I'm the only Christian on our team. I'm the only Christian in our school. I'm the only Christian in the whole world. <laughs> and, then, and then what would we do? We ask each other, pray for me because I'm the only Christian. So I'm not praying for you. I'm praying for all the people that you come in contact with. <laughs> Because if, if their hopes depend on you sharing the truth with them, we need to pray that God will send somebody else in there. Get you out. It'll wimp. What's the whole point? The point is, hey man, if you believe this stuff, it changes the way you look at everything in life. Do you believe the truth? If you believe the truth, man, you believe that you're called, you believe you're called by God, I don't understand. This is so simple to me, but maybe let's just clarify it. Do you believe that you are called by God? Now think about this. Now you go through the Bible and you read where Jesus called people. He said, Peter, hey you, you come and follow me. What did he do? He followed him. He dropped everything and he followed him. See, if you believe this truth that God has called you and He's moving you or He wants to move you in a direction in life, and you're saying, but I don't want to follow because I'm hanging on to this stuff. I'm hanging on to this position. I'm hanging on to these material things. I'm hanging on to this. And, and I know you want me to follow you, but there's some things that are holding me back. Well, if you believe the truth that God called you, you also believe the fact that, you know what, whatever we drop as we follow Him, that he's going to replace in ways that you can't even imagine. You remember the story about the rich young ruler that came and said, hey, what do I got to do to get to heaven? And Jesus said, you know what, you got to sell everything, give it all up and follow me. And the man said, gee, you know, I've done good in every area, but that's one area that I'm going to have a problem with. I can't really do that. And Jesus said, boy, you know, it's really tough for a rich man to get into heaven. It's really tough for people to leave behind their things and just drop everything and follow the calling of Jesus Christ in their life. Now, Peter's a pretty sharp guy. And he's watching all this, and he goes like this. Hey, uh, Lord, I don't know if you remember this or not, but we left everything. I had a pretty good business going. I left it, and I followed you. And Jesus looked at him and said, You know what, Peter? Whatever you left, I'm going to replace a hundred times in the kingdom of God. Could you imagine for a moment if God's people who are called by His name would just understand that principle and that one alone, that whatever you leave behind to answer His calling, to follow Him, you'll never regret it and you'll never miss it. But for so many of us, that's what holds us back from being used by God to being everything that God wants us to be. And how are we going to do these last three things today? I guess we can. Well, you know, we always have next week. And for those of you who are on the every other week rotation, it really messes up your life. 
So we'll have to come back next week. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you that as we look at our responsibility toward the truth, that you tell us first and foremost we're to simply believe it. We're to believe your word. We're to take you at your word. We're to trust you. And God, how easy it is for us as parents to be able to share that with our children and expect them to trust us because we love them and are motivated by love. And yet we are so dense sometimes that we don't even see that that same principle holds true in our relationship with you. God, we just want to take a moment and reflect on the fact that you did love us, that you do love us, that you're motivated by love and it's a personal relationship. That you're not some impersonal machine or some force out there, but you're a God that's personal. You've created us in your image and your likeness. And God, that you're motivated by love. Even when we're rebellion against you, you offer forgiveness to anyone who will accept it. God, you've chosen us before the foundation of the world. How incredible is that? That even before we lived one day, experienced one day of life here on this planet, that you chose us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, before time even began. God, that you sanctified us and separated us from the rest of the world by your Spirit. That you've called us to follow you, to pick up our cross daily and to follow you. God, we just pray that you'll give us the strength and, and more than even strength, the courage to believe this truth and then to make a difference in the life that we live. And we just thank you in Christ's name. Amen.